Hello, J-Knights, and welcome to Austin Chat, a podcast coming to you from the Jane Austen Society of North America. I'm your host, Brecken Wood. Okay, people, get out your bonnets and brush off your top hats, because my guest today is Hillary Davidson, and she knows a lot about Regency-era fashion. She's a dress, textiles, and fashion historian and curator, plus a seamstress extraordinaire, writer, lecturer, and designer. Hillary has even created replica clothing projects for a number of museums, including a replica of Jane Austen's famous police. Hillary is currently associate professor and chair of the graduate program in fashion and textile studies at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. She is also an honorary associate in the Department of Medieval and Early Modern Studies at the University of Sydney. Among her many publications are two of particular interest to us. In 2019, she published Dress in the Age of Jane Austen, and forthcoming in September 2023, very soon, is her latest book, Jane Austen's Wardrobe. So I may be a yoga pants and t-shirt kind of girl, but I cannot wait to dive into Jane Austen's closet and get up to my eyeballs in lace and muslin with Hillary. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Hi, Brecken. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before we start talking lace and silk and all that, um, I want to start with a segment called Desert Island. You're stranded on a desert island, and you can only bring one Austin work with you. Which are you going to choose and why? Well, this is this is quite a tricky one because, you know, my favorite Austin, like many people, is Persuasion. But I'm on a desert island, right? So I'm going to bring the Juvenilia, including <gasps> Lady Susan. Bold and choice. that's because it's rip-snortingly funny. And I'm going to need something to amuse myself. Uh, Lady Susan is slightly scandalous. So, you know, it really is. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure I want to be stuck on a desert island with, you know, Anne Elliott when she's mopey. You know, I want someone who's kind of fun. (laughs) And also, you know, the, the, yeah, exactly. The, the juvenilia, there's so many kind of little short stories there that I think I can amuse myself by thinking about what Jane Austen might have made of those stories as an adult. So I'm taking the juvenilia just for, um, stimulation really it's sure. it's, it's going to give me a lot more to work with than maybe the finished novels I've only recently gotten into the juvenilia and I think that's true of most people it was kind of ignored for a long time and now it's becoming a subject of serious academic study as well as just regular fans are reading it and you're right first of all it's hilarious it's so ridiculous and funny and second of all it's really fun to see the echoes of her mature novels in it I was just reading a story this morning And I was like, this speech sounds almost exactly like what Caroline Bingley says. And I looked it up and almost word for word, it was like she had copied and pasted. And I was like, oh, that's so fun to see these characters kind of in embryo who show up later. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so much fun. Absolutely. And, you know, I like that Lady Susan's kind of naughty as well. She's she's amoral (laughs) in a way that, you know, um, she's more like Becky Shark, perhaps. And I, I think it would have been really interesting to see what Austen might have made of a heroine like that and her moral dimensions in the, the full power of her, her work, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and it really challenges the, the image that we had of Austin for a long time, which we got from her nephew, right. That it was kind of this more Victorian, like, Oh, she's just this dowdy old aunt and she never went any anywhere or ever did anything. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. she was reading some scandalous novels then. Cause I don't know where she got all these ideas from. Well, as she says in the letters, you know, she went to a girl's school and there was, uh, what is it? It's a frieze of cherubs over the mantelpiece. And as she says, that's a fine study for girls. (laughs) 
because the cherubs were completely naked. So, yeah. you know, she knows how many beans make five and there's all <laughs> sorts of fabulous things like that in the letters too. Yes. No, it's it's a lot of fun. It, it gives you whole new dimensions to her. Um, okay. So, Hillary, how did you first come up with the idea to explore Jane Austen's closet? Well, it was one of those kind of ideas that hit me like lightning, really. Um, I was I got stuck in a cottage in Wales during the pandemic. That which, sounds really, you know, I'm just going to say, that sounds idyllic, actually. Maybe it was terrible yeah. for you, but I think most no, of No, no, like, it was, I was with a friend and every time people would say, so how is it? Are you okay? We'd be like, oh, it's, it's tough, but we're, we're getting through. And then just kind of look <laughs> at each other and giggle because it was, it was great. So I'd, um, I, I was teaching online and doing all sorts of things. And I was, I was, I think I was writing something to do with Regency and this thought just popped into my head and it said, I wonder why nobody's ever done anything just looking at what Jane Austen wore because it would be really easy. All you'd have to do is like go through the letters and just like really look at with a fine tooth comb all the references in the letters and then the things that survived, which was closely followed by a thought that went, um, Hillary, you'd probably be a really good person to do this. Oh, yeah, because you have just written a whole book on Regency dress. Oh, yeah. Huh. All right. So I, I sort of thought about it for a bit and I came up with a format of having a quote with kind of explanation and text on one page and then an image on the other, uh, you know, to, to explain and just literally going through what we can know that Jane Austen wore. So I kind of did a couple of mock-up pages for it just because I had this idea in my head. And the next year, um, my publisher was asking me if I had any new book ideas and I went, well, I've got this one idea. And they went, yes, please, thanks. We'll have it. I had a book contract six months later Boom. and the book was delivered a year later. It just wow. it just emerged. It was like it was waiting to be written. Well, we're very excited. We definitely want to go through Jane Austen's underwear and whatever else is mm -hmm. in there. Um, so we were talking about this a bit before about how she's got this perception of being dowdy. She's a spinster, right? She wasn't wealthy. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a fashionable tailor. Um, therefore, she must have looked frumpy, right? But you kind of challenged that assumption in your book. So tell us what you discovered about her fashion choices in your research. Well, one of the really interesting things for me about this book was I could have a really tight focus. So with the previous book, I was trying to sort of look at the whole of Regency dress conceptually and materially through the lens of Jane Austen's life and writings. But for this one, I could get really, really specific. So what started to emerge for me was that when I was looking for, because everything's, most of the references I'm using come from the letters. And so they're dated very specifically. So I wasn't just looking for an example of, say, a cloak, a Regency cloak. I was looking for an example of a black lace cloak in sort of 1798. So very, very specific things. And so what I started to see was, especially in Austen's younger years, sort of say up to her mid-30s, there's, there's a, a strong parallel between the clothing that she's buying and what is appearing, appearing in fashion plates. Mm -hmm. And so when I started looking for a black lace cloak, which she spends quite a lot of time discussing with Cassandra, 
I was like, this is a really fashionable item. And I hadn't quite noticed that before. And not only that, it's really, they're fashionable because there's new developments in lace making technology. So this is like a new fabrics um, being made more available, more cheaply, and super in fashion. And, and I found that in a number of places that often is buying exactly what's in fashion for the time. That When you go to the plates or start looking around, you're like, whoa, that's in, I can get something to the same month that's mm. in fashion for her. Wow. And I mean, really what I discovered with the, the first book is how much of the sort of the middle classes or the gentry's clothing lives were spent being fashionable enough, but not too fashionable. Mm-hmm. And that's really what kind of comes out of the book is that Austin knew what was in fashion and she made her own choices about responding to that, um, usually in tandem with Cassandra. And she 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 kept up with things. She had some quirks about what she liked to wear, but she was pretty much uh, on top of fashion in the records that we have for her. Wow. Yeah. I don't think most people know that about her. And do you think that her proximity to London had anything to do with that? I mean, relatively, she was pretty close. Absolutely. I mean, we get we get the best shopping letters from her from London. During the Regency period, people made great use of proxy consumption so that if you knew anyone who's going to London or Bath, you'd say, oh, can you get me some of this and some of that? So she and Cassandra shopped for each other. But it was um, it, it was an advantage and she could go to London herself and see things. And there's lots of letters where she talks about, oh, I've been shopping for this or I've seen these pretty caps in uh, Cranbourne Alley, but I'm going to wait till you come till we decide which ones we like. So she was she was an informed and savvy shopper who had at her disposal, you know, many of the same resources as the best dresses in London. I mean, how much you want to spend is always an issue. But she she was there. She knew the retail landscape of the metropolis and made took full advantage of it in Bath as well. Yeah, I think it's funny and unexpected because a lot of the characters in her novels who pay attention to dress pay too much attention to dress, Mm -hmm. right? There's like Mrs. Allen in Northanger Abbey talking about her muslin and, oh, my muslin's going to tear. And so I think some people would be surprised to find out that actually Austin liked to look nice and she cared about the quality of her clothes you know she's she she would poke fun at anything right it doesn't mean that she doesn't care about it exactly it's it's the beautiful irony of her you know the 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 narrator's commentary in Northanger Abbey that dress is at all times a frivolous distinction um and she goes on to talk about dress in the guise of talking about in frivolity and you know the sheer mastery of Austen's irony is that you never quite know what she thinks she can simultaneously be on both sides of a question. So uh, yeah, she can make fun of people who are interested in dress while at the same time she's interested in dress. Yeah. And then, but then Henry Tilney jumps in and starts talking about muslin and it's suddenly it's really charming that like, Oh, a man is paying attention to, to fashion and fabric. Although he's probably, yeah, he could well be pulling everyone's legs there, but they're still talking about it. They're talking about muslin. Yeah. And the thing is it was important. Like the quality of clothing was very important because you know, we, we, we have problems with, say, overchoice now, but for consumers in Austin's day, they had to they had to choose everything from the ground up. So if you were getting a new dress, um, a lot of the conversation in letters between Austin and Cassandra, although, you know, it's one-sided, we don't have Cassandra's letters to, to match it, is about the technicalities and the qualities of, is this, is this a good enough? What's a quality muslin? How can I allocate my funds so that they get me like the best range of clothing but also is going to last mm-hmm. how can I alter my clothing so that things are a little bit shabby I can make them go a bit further it's concerned with practicalities because people had fewer clothes 
and could replace them less less often. So the quality of the fabric really mattered. And to be a savvy consumer was about knowing how things would wear, um, would wash and wear, as as Henry Tilney says. Yeah, because that that determined um, how long your clothes could be usable and presentable for, respectable. Right. And it's sort of it's an investment, right? So you can either, I mean, even, even now people, you can buy something cheap and it can, you can throw it away in six months or you can invest a little more on the front end and then you get to enjoy it for a lot longer. Exactly. Let's talk accessories. Uh, A woman of Jane's social class, she's not covered in bling, right? But she did have a few key jewelry items. So what, what are those things that you found in her wardrobe? Well, one of the joys of jewellery is that it survives much more easily than dress items do. Um, one of the problems with clothing is that nice fabrics get reused and recycled and chopped up or eaten by moths or exposed by light or, you know, water damage. But jewellery is very durable, which is one of the reasons that makes it valuable. And uh, the the jewellery pieces that we know that have a provenance of belonging to Jane Austen are kept in uh, Jane Austen's house in Chawton. And they were very kindly, the, the house has just been an amazing support during the writing of this book. And they very kindly kindly let me have access to the um, record files. So I kind of had a complete history of, of how these pieces had come into the collection. So there's a turquoise ring, uh, which I think is the most famous piece because uh, it was attempted to be sold at auction and Kelly Clarkson, the American singer, was going, she bought it and she wanted to take it out. And they, they suddenly had to pull together an export ban for, to, to keep it in Britain and then raise the same amount of money. Exactly. Exactly. Her fiance then made her a copy with diamonds in it too. So, and she was very, very gracious about the whole thing. There's also, um, a turquoise bracelet, a quite sort of cheap turquoise bracelet. And of course, I think the most famous pieces of jewellery are the pair of topaz crosses, which belonged to Jane and Cassandra and which she immortalised in Mansfield Park under the guise of uh, Fanny Price's brother William's gift to Fanny of a topaz cross and the issue about how she's going to hang it on a chain or on a necklace and the difference between Henry Crawford and Edward Bertram are kind of played out through the materiality of the jewellery. Yeah, no, I love that. I think when you find out that little biographical information that Jane Austen also had a sailor brother who also gave her a topaz cross. Like it's like a little Easter egg in there. So that's a lot of fun. Um, So what about other extras like gloves and fans? Well, there's, she mentions gloves sort of all the way through. I've, I've kind of lumped um, gloves together in the book. I should say as well that the book is called Jane Austen's Wardrobe and I thought a lot about how to organize it. So I've organized it by the way that clothes are stored. So we have her her closet, first of all, and we have her clothes pressed and drawers and shelves and a jewellery box and a dressing table. And everything's put together according to the places that it would have been stored as part of her wardrobe. So accessories like gloves and fans, I think they come under her dressing table. Um, There's a I think it's a fabulous entrance uh, reference to a white fan that she says she wears to a ball in the late 1790s. And she's got this, she's, this got this one reference that I'm so intrigued by that says, I am very glad he never dropped it in the river. And I'm desperate to know Ooh. who was going to drop Jane Austen's white fan in the river. On purpose? So, Is there some tease or a bow? Exactly. So we've got... Um, We've got sort of references to her gloves and and a couple of fans, but then also little things like um, headdresses she wears or uh, what else have we got? Her handkerchiefs, um, silk handkerchiefs, linen handkerchiefs. So the gloves, 
would they have all been would they have been uh wrist length elbow length would it depends on the time of day okay and people tended to buy them in multiple pairs which is very sensible because you know gloves get easily lost um as captain wentworth uses you know leaving his gloves behind as a pretext to come and and give Anne the letter in persuasion but they also you one might get stained so you often sort of buy them in in say three pairs so you'd always have you know if you messed up the left hand you could take the left hand of another pair for that um i think by far the accessory that we get the most references to throughout the letters is headwear which get their own they've got their own section in a band box so caps and bonnets and other kinds of hats are definitely um a feature of jane austen's wardrobe or what what we can know of the wardrobe you know what what survives to us in mm-hmm. these small references in the 161 surviving letters so would she have worn feathered turbans or anything like that i mean in the one portrait we have of her she's wearing that cap that cap that everyone has seen and she mentions exactly. making and trimming caps in her letters um would would those caps have just been for around the house and then would she have had something a little more fancy for a ball she absolutely did she was she was very fond of caps and she took to caps earlier than was usual so did cassandra at about sort of 25 she just sort of wore them all the time and as she said it saves me a great deal of trouble in hairdressing so you know i I quite respect that it's like the equivalent of a messy bun right i just like put a cap on that speaks to me deeply yes that's my whole life is the if I could cover it with a shower cap and that would be socially acceptable I would totally do that well it absolutely was in Austin's day and that's pretty much what she was doing um but then the sort of the references to her headwear uh actually the one of the references that gets sort of pulled up the most is to her Mameluke cap um which Constance Hill who wrote one of the first biographies I think it's Jane Austen her her life and friends your readers will know instantly which book I'm talking about she she says oh you know we we must know that a Mameluke cap is a sort of a type of fez but um, I found a fashion plate of someone actually wearing a Mameluke cap and it is indeed a feathered turban and I compare that as well in the book with drawings from life of Mamelukes in Egypt from about 1807. And we can see that it is kind of like a round turban. And turbans as female headwear were very popular uh, during the sort of the late 1790s and into the Regency period. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Jane Austen did wear feathered turbans. And that's something we can specifically say that she wore. And I've got a picture of it in the book. That's awesome. So, Yeah. And I, I feel like in, in movie adaptations, at least, the feather turban is always for, like, the older ridiculous mother, right? It's yeah. for, like, the Lady Bertrams and for the Mrs. Bennets. And and then I, if they ever get into a tizzy, the feather starts quivering, you know? So it's kind of funny to picture Jane Austen in one of those as well. Absolutely. They never put the heroine. The heroines are never wearing them. Or, like, Caroline Bingley. Caroline Bingley one, always gets a feathered turban. I think it's sort yeah. of to signify her, her fashionability. But uh, they were right. they were more generally worn than that. I mean, they did, in the 18 sort of hundreds and tens, they became a bit more of an, of an older woman thing. But also often for literary women sort of blue stockings or or writers there was a kind of an air of that as well but uh yeah when they first well they sort of become popular in the late 1790s jane austen is right on it boom she's so for fashion forward i'm so glad that you figured this out she's 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 you know just keeping an eye on things and she's like adding things into her wardrobe that are of the moment okay so how would these like we kind of mentioned age differences, how would these clothes and accessories have changed as Austin aged? Were older women expected to wear darker colors or different materials or anything like that? They sort of were. I mean, the general idea was that the older you got, the less skin you showed. 
So, you know, obviously the Regency period and the changes of dress, it's a very skin showing period if one chooses. Uh, a lot of arm. Okay, can we talk about can we talk about cleavage? Because you mentioned that <laughs> in another interview I heard you talk about, and you mentioned that you are a Regency era cleavage expert, and I just I want that I want to talk about That's that. That's fine. Um, I never thought that so much of my life would have been talking about Regency breasts, but you know, I'm I'm happy to to have that expertise. They feature prominently in the adaptations. We can all see them. They're just right there. Mm-hmm. Self on a shelf, as a friend of mine calls them. <laughs> Self on a shelf? Self on a shelf. Huh. Um, so how how is that? You said that like the cleavage or the, the shape historically or cha- changes over time? The thing is that we underestimate the ways in which the new shape of the Regency breast is completely crucial to the high-waisted gown. You don't get those high-waisted gowns without a fundamental rethink about how the cleavage is shaped. So in the 18th century, um, stays, as they were called, corset is not a thing yet, not a word yet, comes in, uh, they're very sort of like, they're a monobosom. You've got like a smooth, straight front that kind of presses the breast together with that, you know, what we think of as that line of cleavage that's kind of, you know, cleavage now. And what happens uh, in the 1790s is as stays gets get lighter, they become less boned, they become more shaped to the natural body. This is actually what the French were first calling a corset, corset, a little, a little body. And for the first time really since, oh gosh, the late Middle Ages, women's bust support, which is one of the main purposes of stays or corsets, it gives them two breasts. And, you know, what I, what I, what I frequently describe as two oranges on a plate. So instead of being squished together like bread dough, they're kind of lift and separate. And once you have two, you know, perky bosoms to work with, that is also changing how you're cutting the gowns around them. Um, that becomes the focal point of the gown and you you start to get gowns that kind of dip in between the breasts. So okay. Regency cleavage is uh, not like we think of it today with the kind of, you know, squished boobs together and the kind of the, the line down the center the cleavage is there's quite a gap in the middle there which is you know one of the the new corsets that came in was called the divorce corset because it separated them <laughs> so do any of the movies get it right do any of the adaptation or do they oh, do no, the they, squish together no 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 they they they're they're usually right um the you can tell when someone hasn't been paying attention to to regency corsets properly because they just assume that it's like all the squished together and that Basically, sexy cleavage has to be, you know, squishy bread dough. But when you look at, like, even pictures of Marilyn Monroe in the 1950s, have a look at what her cleavage is doing because it's 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 far more Regency. There's quite a big gap down the middle, even though, you know, this is voluptuous sex goddess Marilyn Monroe. She's right. not, like, squished together cleavage. I hope my readers are, the, the, the <laughs> listeners are all, like, envisaging this at home or, you know. So it's really, it's central to Regency dress, The how that kind of... Um, prominence of the bosoms and the the fact that they're sort of vaguely naturally shaped in the you know like our modern bras have two separate cups um that that really changes how gowns are cut and then decorated and it's it's fundamental and pivotal to regency fashion and so for the older women are those what necklines starting to rise as they get older exactly so that you you'd still be wearing the same sort of shape uh, corset or stays underneath but the necklines become higher your arms become more covered uh, your décolletage becomes you know covered more and more up to the neck your caps become more elaborate so less skin shows but I mean there's also there's there's a real 
there's a bit of a discrepancy between ideas about what older women should wear and what older women actually wear, which I mm-hmm. really love. Uh, so the idea was that women should, you know, become more modest and retiring and, you know, not flaunt their ew oldness in <laughs> in general public um, and, you know, wear darker clothes and be all sober and matronly and appropriate. Hide in the corner over there. Pretty much. And which Amanda Vickery has written quite beautifully about in an article called Mutton Dressed as Lamb. But when you look at the record books of older women, and I've, I've looked at the account books of a couple, they're spending on the same kinds of fabrics and kinds of colours that a lot of younger women are doing. So I really think that, like in so many periods, the the social ideal of how women should behave at a certain point was always tempered by women's individual taste and, you know, wealth to a certain point. We all know that rich people get away with a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was there was... It's, it's not necessarily women conforming to what should be done. Um, there is this always a slight sense, though, is that women get older. Often they just can't be bothered anymore. Mm-hmm. Like they've, they've spent a lot of time on dress and they're like, this is what I like, this is what I'm going to wear and sort of fall into to habits of clothing. And that seems to happen in the, the, in the Regency as well. And as I've already said, Jane Austen went, I'm done with hairstyling. Slap that 25. cap on, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I want to talk about sewing because you have that incredible skill. Um, She makes quite a few references in her letters to sewing for herself, for her family members, and especially for the poor. Um, So would she have made all of her own clothing or would some of it have been made by a local seamstress? Was there anything ready-made yet during her time or is that not until later in the 1800s? There is lots of answers to those questions. Uh, The first I'll take sort of the last to first. There are some ready-made things. She talks about at one point buying a ready-made cloak at Alton. Um, she can buy ready-made shoes. There are some things that are that are ready-made, but the sewing on them, the sewing quality is usually not very good. Jane Austen would have had a lot of things made by a professional, and in fact, the letters are frequently referencing the the professional women who are making her clothes. The pelisse was absolutely made by a professional, and many of her gowns were as well. She's got. Uh, Mrs. Muscle, Miss Summers, um, a, a few named makers throughout the letters. How many of her clothes she made herself and how many, or, or Cassandra, is actually very hard to quantify or to, to tell what she did. She certainly altered clothing. Um, there's references to her saying, oh, look, the dressmaker didn't do so well with this gown. I had to alter it a great deal before I could wear it. Uh, they There are some references to kind of Cassandra making. She finished a muslin cloak for their friend Martha Lloyd. But how much of their own clothing she made is, is it's very, very hard to find out. Um, and I only sort of get the, the vaguest sense of it. Things like linens and underwear tended to be made by women themselves. Uh, so I can assume that a lot of those those were done. Um, but she definitely used professionals. Or like men's shirts as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Men are not doing any of their own sewing. No, no, no. They, I mean, men can buy ready-made linen shirts if they want to, but generally the women in their family are making them, which Austen did for her brothers. And, I mean, she was a very, very good seamstress. As she mm-hmm. herself says of her work, you know, my work was the neatest of the party in making Edward's shirts. And in the book I've included the handkerchief that she embroidered for Cassandra um, in satin stitch, which is really hard, and she is immaculate. She... She wrote like she sewed, um, perfectly with precision and control and knew exactly what she was doing. And I love that kind of, you know, how you do 
how you do one thing is how you do everything. Right. I was reading some accounts from her nieces and nephews and they were talking about just her manual dexterity is very good. Yes. So like when, when she would make edits to her own work, she, she used these editing pins, yes. you know, cause there's no white out or anything like that. And paper is precious. So if she had to insert a whole, sometimes she would just do inline insertions, but sometimes she's got a little piece of paper and she pins it on perfectly. And like the, the precision in that just really shows the, the care that she took with it exactly yeah she was she she had the same kind of precision observation and control it seems in in everything that she did so yeah so you've done a lot of hand sewing right mm-hmm. most people today don't even sew buttons back on their own clothes I personally cannot do that but you've made entire pieces of clothing by hand so tell us a little bit about that maybe about what it was like to recreate Austin's police um, did you do all of that by hand did you have oh, yeah. to make a did you have to make the what's that what's it called the pattern yourself? Oh yeah, or... I did everything. I, I that's amazing. Tell us yeah. about it. So yeah, I did a reconstruction project on Jane Austen's police that I actually started in two thousand and seven. So I spent a day and a half with the original garment and I measured it and took you know lots and lots of photos and worked out its construction order and then did quite a lot of versions of it. Uh, you know, first of all a toile to test the pattern and then one in sort of scrap fabric to see how it worked and then I've done two in recon, uh, properly reconstructed fabric as well. So I've spent a lot of time um, and I've done, you know, other Regency sewing projects um, for one for a documentary in 2013 and then for, you know, private things. So I've spent a lot of time in sort of the, the space of a Regency seamstress and I am, you know, I'm a pretty good sewer. Um, also, I think it really helps to see what people did historically and then when you're trying to match people's historical sewing, it makes you improve rapidly very very quickly um, but that was really where I came to resewing the police made me come to the realization that I had sort of many years ago and I think I, I started talking about about 2017 but I put in the book my first book as well is that sewing is it's it's a really it gives you space to think and there's lots of there's been some great work done on sort of sewing as a, a more positive activity in the past recently. So people like Anna Larpent, she talks about um, sewing as a form of meditation and she would read texts and then and mull on them while she worked. And it really gives you a chance to just sort of sit and think. And there's this, I think in the modern day, there's this, there's, this, there's certainly a trope in things written now about the past that are like, oh yeah, you know, sewing's all drudgery and I'm a modern heroine and I'm just going to like throw my embroidery out the window and go and ride a horse and be all cool and empowered, you know. And it neglects the like sheer amount of skill involved to just sew, but also that you've got time to think. And, you know, we see this with Austin, that her her niece recalls her like sitting working and anytime you see a reference to work, it always means needlework in the corner. And then she'd laugh to herself jump up, write something down, and then go back to working. So Mm -hmm. that sort of sense of, you know, I'd find myself thinking over things I'd read on Twitter or, you know, just sort of mulling over thoughts. And it's actually this incredible creative and generative space. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. there are people who sew kind of or knit, nodding along at home about this. Um, So it really, one, I mean, it really helped me to, so as being a sewer helped me to understand the skill of, the people who made the clothes I was seeing in museum collections. So when I see a shirt with 50 stitches per inch, 
I'm just, you know, in awe because I know (laughs) what that takes and how much time that takes. And to think about the role of sewing in women's lives as a community positive thing and start to sort of move away from our preconceptions about what sewing does and it's, it's, you know, so-called drudgery, but also think about it as creativity and ways of kind of materialising love and care. You know, there's all these presents that people make for each other, all these women making gifts for each other that move around their social circles. And then they are also spending a lot of their free time making clothing for the less fortunate because Mm -hmm. you can't buy ready-made. So what do you do if you're a widow with five children who has to clothe those children and be vaguely respectable? You can't possibly spend all that whole time sewing for your children. Um, And so acts of charity were also kind of acts of love and care and that middle-class women are extending using their material and also temporal resources to um, do good and help others um, in getting this this quite difficult to achieve material resource of clothing. So it's, yeah, I think sewing's complex and wonderful subject. I think the handicrafts are definitely coming back. They're making a a big resurgence, especially because of the pandemic and shutdown. Everyone's like, well, now what do I do? Maybe I'll take up embroidery or maybe I'll start crocheting. I definitely crocheted a lot during the pandemic. And I, yeah, I think one of the most valuable or one of the most rewarding things about um, a skill like that is giving it away to someone. And yeah. because, I mean, I've, I've crocheted blankets and I'm like, you know, here's 30 hours of my time. And most of it was in front of Netflix, but still, here you go. You know, it is, it's a huge act of labor and love when everything is ready-made now. There's something especially beautiful and and meaningful about things that are handmade. I'm totally on board with you. I think throwing all the old feminine arts out because they were in some way oppressive is throwing the baby out with bathwater. Exactly. It's like saying all corsets were oppressive and you're like, well, how would you support your breasts then? You know, (laughs) like there's, there's, it's sheer functionality. You know, this is, it's, it's, yeah, there's, there's a spectrum of practices. Definitely. Yeah. And we don't want to take away their autonomy, right? I mean, exactly. a lot of them were choosing to make these things and use these things and wear these things. And um, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, this has been such a fun conversation, Hillary. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, again, your book is coming out and that's September, September 12th, the 12th. Right? So September it's 12th. available for pre-order and, you know, through all the usual, however you choose to buy your books. Mm-hmm. And then where can people find you online to learn more about all this historical fashion? I am. Uh, my personal Twitter and Instagram accounts are at four red shoes. And because people ask, that's a pair and a spare. And then I also have a Twitter account for um, both my books at Austin Dress. Okay, that's great. And then also if anyone's looking up Hillary Davidson, Hillary with one L. Very much so with one L. And since moving to America, I have to defend that single L fiercely because double L is the default spelling here. Yeah, but definitely go online, look on our show notes. We'll have pictures of some of these things that Hillary's been talking um, with us about today. Thank you so much, Hillary. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, friends, it's time for another dollop of JASNA news. As you may know by now, the JASNA annual general meeting is coming up. It's going to be in Denver, Colorado, November 2nd to the 5th, and the theme is Pride and Prejudice, a Rocky Romance. 
Some of you may be forced to forego the pleasures of the AGM due to schedule conflicts or personal reasons, but unlike poor Kitty Bennett, weeping with vexation and envy as her sister Lydia prepares to go off to Brighton, we have a happy alternative. The core AGM conference session will be available online in real time as a live stream virtual package. JASNA members who register for the live stream option can watch from anywhere in the world live as they happen. They can watch all three plenary lectures, including Dr. Janet Todd's To Dream of Pemberley, Dr. Claudia L. Johnson's Austin Escape, and Francine Matthews' Solving the Male Mystery, The Bennett Sisters as Detective Heroines. Five breakout sessions pre-selected by JASNA looking at Pride and Prejudice from Fascinating Angles, and three special interest sessions focusing on Austin Relic's Austin podcasts, and Austin-related programming in libraries. The package also includes informal mini-chats with selected speakers and opportunities to interact with other live stream participants around the world. If the timing of the live stream isn't right for you, you'll also have 30 days to watch recordings of all these sessions, along with a recording of the performance of the Jane Austen playlist, Pride and Prejudice. This program, which includes guest musicians and costume performers, is being premiered at the AGM. Information about the live stream virtual package will be available in the show notes for this episode at jasna.org slash Austin slash podcast slash episode three. The cost for both live stream and virtual access is $175, and there's a special discounted price of $125 for Jasna student members. The deadline for signing up for the live stream is October 16th. Of course, there's nothing like the full in-person JASNA AGM experience, and there are still some spaces available, and we'll provide the link to program and registration information in our show notes as well, or you can go to jasna.org slash AGMS slash Denver 2023 slash home dot PHP. Either way, we hope you can join us live, in-person, virtual, whichever way you can get your AGM, please do, and please join us. Now it's time for In Her Own Words, a segment where listeners share a favorite Austin quote or two. Hi, my name is Betty Parker Ellis, and I enjoy saying that I am a member of the North Carolina, Georgia, and South Carolina regions of JASNA. One of my favorite Austin quotes comes from Pride and Prejudice, when Elizabeth Bennett tells Lady Catherine de Bourgh during the Shades of Pemberley encounter, I am only resolved to act in that manner, which will, in my own opinion, constitute my happiness without reference to you or to any person so wholly unconnected with me. I thought this just demonstrated so well a claim that Elizabeth had made earlier to Mr. Darcy while they were at Rosings Park, when she said, There is a stubbornness about me that never can bear to be frightened at the will of others. My courage always rises at every attempt to intimidate me. This just makes me want to stand up and cheer her on, both Elizabeth Bennett and Jane Austen, as wonderful role models for how to navigate our way through intimidating situations in life. Now that is my kind of conduct book. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, Janeites. If you're interested in joining the Jane Austen Society of North America or learning more about its programs, publications, and events, you can find them online at jasna.org. That's J-A-S-N-A dot org. Join us again next time, and in the meantime, I remain yours affectionately, Breckenwood.